Well, uh, welcome to River City. Uh, good to have you here. If you are new or visiting, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Really glad to have you this morning. Um, as always, it is good to be with you. I am really looking forward to starting a brand new series this morning um, and uh, looking forward to opening God's Word as we do that. Um, on October 31st, uh, 1517, just, just about 500 years ago, uh, a guy named Martin Luther walked across his hometown uh, to his church, the door of which functioned kind of like a public bulletin board. And there he nailed a poster with uh, 95 theses or 95 statements outlining a number of issues that um, he had become convinced that the church was in error, the church's teaching was in error about. And his actions that day were an invitation towards uh, public debate that he hoped would strengthen the church. One author writes it this way, it was the 16th century version of a provocative blog post, uh, wanting online discussion. That's kind of the the attitude um, in which Luther came posting those things. And while I'm sure that Luther could uh, never have imagined what his actions that day would mean for the course of history, historians look back on that day as the start of what is called the, the Reformation. The Reformation was not the work of one man. It wasn't Luther's thing or, or some specific person or one church or one specific area. Rather, it was a complex movement with many tributaries. But Luther's actions that day are kind of, have taken on a symbolic significance of kind of the starting point. Of that happening. And at the heart of the Reformation were the fundamental questions of how we know God and how we are made right with Him. How we know God and how we are made right with Him. Those questions are at the very heart of the Christian faith. So the Reformers, including Martin Luther, they were convicted that the church of their day had drifted away from the essential original teachings of Christianity, especially in regard to what it was teaching about salvation. And the Reformation sought to reorient the Christian faith around the original teachings of Jesus on these issues. As we look back at that movement in church history, what we see are five foundational pillars, five uh, ideas on which the Reformation as a whole rested on. And these things are referred to as the five solas. Sola is a Latin, which simply means only or, or alone. And each of the five solas, they answer a part of the question regarding how we know God and how we're made right with him, how we're saved. Again, there's five solas. The first is sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone. Sola fida, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Solus Christus, Christ alone is our Lord and our Savior and our King. Soli de Gloria, the Bible alone is our highest authority. One pastor writes, the five solas are the summarization of what the Reformers believed the Bible taught about salvation, that we are saved by God's grace alone on the basis of Christ alone, that that is received through faith alone to the glory of God alone, and that the Scriptures alone, the Bible alone, is the only final decisive authority on truth. You might be thinking, uh, Brandon, uh, that's great. Tally-ho, excited about that dude 500 years ago. Great, let's move on. Why does his feisty blog post uh, on, in the 16th century matter to us at all? And I would just say um, it matters because these five theological truths are at the very heart of the Christian faith. 
It matters because when it comes to what we believe about how we know God and how we are made right with him, what we believe about that thing, what we believe about how we are saved, that, that matters. What we believe always changes the way that we live. It always changes what we do. And what we believe about the most important part of our faith absolutely changes what we do. Um, as we go through this series, so, some sermons I go after your heart. And I, I want to stir up your affections for the Lord. I want to remind you about all that he's done and who he is. I want to stir up your affections of your hearts. Some sermons I go after your hands. And I, I want to help you think about how you live and how your life is changed in, in, in light of uh, what is true about God's word and who he is and what he said, what, what we do in response to it. But sometimes I need to go after your head. I need to go after what, what we think and what we believe. And that's what these next this series is really going to be about. My goal is not for these next five weeks to be uh, this theological seminary lecture. But rather, my heart is that as we wrestle with these foundational truths about how we know God and how we're made right with him, that your minds would be filled with, with clarity and confidence about what you believe and why you believe those things. It is, it is simply not enough for us to just have opinions about stuff. We need to know why we think the things that we think if we want to honor the Lord and live for him and proclaim him to our world. My heart is that as, the, as our clarity and our confidence about those things grows, that our minds will be, uh, that out of that confidence and out of that clarity, our hearts will be filled with great joy and gratitude for all the things that this Bible says about who God is and all that he's done and how he has saved sinners like you and like me. And that your love for Jesus would grow and your love for him would increase and multiply. And that out of your heart's joy and your love for God would overflow a life that is gladly, that is relentlessly lived for him. That is my heart as we dig into some of these things, which might feel like heady things. That's my heart, that's my desire, that's where I long for us to go. So to that end, let's pray, and we'll dive into our study and our passage this morning. God, thanks for you. Thanks for our time together in your word. God, we, I just pray that you would shut my mouth when the things I think I should say are not right or helpful or good. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit so that what I have to say would be all from you. God, we are so grateful for you and for our time together. We just pray that it would be fruitful and good as we sit under the authority of your teaching, under the authority of your word, which is good and right and true. God, for all these things, we pray for our good and for your ever-increasing abiding glory. Amen. Amen. Well, we begin our study looking at the five solas by taking a look at that fifth one, sola scriptura. It's sola scriptura, the conviction that scripture alone is our highest authority that undergirds all of the other of the solas. And in fact, it's so foundational not only to the five solas and the Reformation, but to every part of our faith that we're going to spend actually the next two weeks taking a look at that. Uh, it's the starting point. If we want to know how we interact with God, how we know him, then like what he has said has to be the thing where we start. That needs to be the place that we, where we begin. It's the very beginning of our interactions with God. And at the heart of Sola Scripture is the question about authority. What holds the highest authority in determining what we believe and how we live? Where do we go to find the truth about who God is and what our lives are supposed to be like in light of him? The Reformers, this was absolutely foundational to their concerns about the church of their day. And as we figure out how we know God and how we relate to him, 
The question is, where does the buck stop? Whose opinion matters most? Is it going to be our personal experience that's the final judge of, of how we know God and how we're right with him? Is it going to be our own reasoning and our intellect that accurately weighs all the options? Is it going to be our traditions that we've always, the things we've always done, or though just the way that we've always going to do things that holds the most sway? Or is it going to be the scriptures that are the litmus test of all matters of faith and practice? Only one thing can be the highest authority, and I would argue that only one thing should be, because only one of them is the Word of God. Now, to hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura means that we look to the Bible as our highest authority in all matters of faith and practice, and, and we measure all truth in reference to that. Scripture is the starting point for our investigations into what is true and right and good, and it's the judge over the, our findings. And when we disagree, when our experience or our reasoning, our intellect, or our tradition is at odds with what the Scripture says, it's not God's Word that is wrong. It's us that is wrong. That's what it means to hold to that doctrine where we put Scripture as the thing of highest authority. Now, in highlighting what it means, I just want to point out two things that it doesn't mean. This is really important, okay? Sola Scriptura is not the same as nuda Scriptura or bare Scripture. It doesn't mean that Scripture is the only source of truth, right? If you want to change your oil, you don't read the Bible to do that, okay? You look at a car manual because that's where the truth is for how to do that. Two plus two is four. hate to break it to you. That's not in the Bible, right? There is truth that is outside of the Bible, okay? Instead, Scripture means, sola scriptura means that our ultimate and trustworthy authority for faith and practice, so that everything else we learn about God and about his world and about all other authorities, we interpret in light of his word. Likewise, sola scriptura is not the same as solo scriptura, or saying that Scripture is our only authority. To say that Scripture is our only authority is... I mean, well, it's unbiblical, but it's also pretty ignorant and also very prideful. God himself established other forms of authority, whether that's the, the leaders of the church, whether that's the government itself, whether that's parents over children. Think about it this way. There is a Supreme Court in our country, and that doesn't mean that the lower courts are meaningless. It doesn't mean that they don't have authority. It doesn't mean that what they say doesn't matter. It just means that what the Supreme Court says matters the most, and it overrides what everyone else has to say. It doesn't negate those things at all. It just means that what the Supreme Court says is the thing that matters most. That's what sola scriptura is about. Solo, that's not what we hold to. Sola scriptura. Additionally, sola scriptura doesn't mean that we don't utilize things like experience or our reason or our intellect, our minds, or our, even our church traditions as we seek to understand God. It doesn't mean that we don't utilize those things. It just means that those things are subordinate to God's word. Our experiences, those things can be misremembered. Our reason, our intellect, it can be incomplete. Our traditions, they can sometimes be unfounded. And the thing is it's a is that if any of those things depart from the Bible's teaching, then we should reject those things. Only one thing can be the highest authority, and only one thing should be. In the Apostle Paul, we're going to study a section of his letter to young Pastor Timothy, and in the Apostle Paul's final letter from prison, before his death, he writes to a young Pastor Timothy, and his encouragement 
for Timothy. His advice for him, his challenge to this young leader is to go all in on God's word, to go all in on the Bible and put all his chips on the supremacy and the sufficiency of God's words in all matters of faith and practice. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Paul writes this. He says, evildoers and imposters, they'll go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you've become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we study this passage this morning, what I want to do is I want to highlight for you three things that the Apostle Paul says about Scripture, three reasons why he thinks Scripture should be our highest authority. The first reason that Paul gives Timothy to rely on Scripture to be the highest authority is that it's God's Word. Verse 16, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. The Bible clearly, emphatically, undeniably, it, it claims to be the Word of God. The Bible labels itself the Word of God nearly 50 times. The Word of the Lord, is, it calls itself the Word of the Lord over 250 times. It says, thus says the Lord over 290 times in the Bible. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. And when you, find out, when you want to find out the truth about something, you go to the source, right? You don't go to third-hand information. You try to go to the source. That's how you find what the accurate information is. And if we want to know God and we want to know how to be made right with him, we go to the source. We go to his word. When Paul says that the scripture is God-breathed, he means that every word of scripture is inspired by God. God is the author of the Bible. It is inspired by him, but is written through human agents. We call this the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration is, again, this is a, this is, you don't need to remember everything I'm saying this morning, but I just want to give a robust layout of some of these things. The doctrine of inspiration is the inexplicable and supernatural influence of the Spirit over the writers of Scripture, such that without overwhelming their personalities, the Holy Spirit superintended their writings so that they are the words of God. Just a few things to, to mention about that. Um, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, what we don't mean is dictation. God didn't just like summon some dude up to his throne room and just like tell him to write stuff down until his hand fell off. Uh, that's, that's not what inspiration means. Um, some parts of the Bible were dictated, though. Some things literally God spoke to people and said, write this down. And uh, the Ten Commandments, he literally actually wrote. But inspiration is not dictation. And also, inspiration is not, it's not, it's not like a seance. It's not like... God just possessed somebody and they were totally not themselves and he just kind of came down, the Spirit came down and just kind of wrote and they just don't remember whatever happened and, and they can't see. That, that's not. The Apostle Paul, uh, when he writes, he sounds like the Apostle Paul. Ezekiel, when he writes, he sounds like Ezekiel. The personality, the, the tone, the traits of the different writers, those things are preserved. And if you read Scripture, what you see is that it's not just like one voice that's there. It's one story, it's one truth, but it's not just one voice. I point these things out to you because those positions about whether it's dictation or whether it's just a saints, those aren't defensible positions. If you apply like any meaningful amount of logic or, or any good questions to that, 
it just really quickly breaks down. And what happens is that it erodes our, 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 uh, our confidence in the Bible if we hold to that stuff. Rather, inspiration is what we, we use the term concursus. It's the acting of two forces to create one thing in the inspiration of the Bible. Second Peter chapter uh, 1, verses 20 says it this way, Prophecy never came about by the will of man, but men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. Each word of the Bible is inspired. Each word is the exact word God wanted to use at that point, and each of it is equally inspired. The big theological term that you don't need to remember is called verbal plenary inspiration. The Bible doesn't just claim to be the divine word of God. It backs those claims up, and we don't have time to get into that today, but I would just offer you the sheer volume of fulfilled prophecy just simply cannot be explained in any other way. So Paul reminds Timothy and us that the Scriptures should be our highest authority because they are the very Word of God. But the second reason he gives is that God's Word is trustworthy. Verse 14, he tells Timothy, continue what you've learned and what you have become convinced of. Like Paul, Timothy had become convinced of the trustworthiness of Scripture. He was convinced enough not just to believe something about it, but to actually give his very life to proclaiming the stuff he found in that. It's one thing for something to have the highest authority, but that authority is not only unwarranted, it is absolutely worthless if that thing is not trustworthy. For something to be trustworthy means two things. It means that it is both reliable and that it's true. For something to be trustworthy, it means that it's reliable and that it's true. The reliability of the Bible is often brought into question. The argument usually goes something like this. It's an old book. It was copied a ton of times by hand. It's like an ancient version of the telephone game. That thing has got to have tons of errors in there. It's got to be full of errors. And and I would just respond, yes and no. Scholars estimate that there are upwards of 150,000 variants or mistakes in the thousands of different ancient manuscripts we have of the Bible. The the truth is, though, that 99.9% of those variants are minuscule. They're, they're, they're meaningless. They're things such as the misspelling of a word or the order of two words, whether it says Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, or the absence of one or more insignificant words. And really, when all the facts are put on the table, there's only about 50 variants that have any real significance to them. And even then, none of those affect any central teaching of the Christian faith or any moral commandment in any way. You see, the volume of manuscripts that we have of the Bible actually helps us to ensure its accuracy because the errors are easier to point out. The Bible is, by an enormous margin, the most well-documented book of all of ancient history. There are vastly more manuscripts copied with greater accuracy and with earlier dating than any other secular classic from antiquity, whether that's works by Plato or Homer or even Roman historians like Tacitus, on which much of our history books about the Roman Empire are actually written and based. Even scholars who think that what the Bible has to say is totally crazy they're not questioning the reliability of what we have. They might disagree with what it says, but they're not questioning whether what we have is actually accurate. What what we have is what was originally written. That's not the question that's, that's at hand. Which brings us to the next question. How did we get the Bible that we have? 
Who decided what was in? Who decided what was out? Like the Da Vinci Code, was there this massive cover-up to hide some alternate material? Was there some mob-like regime that was just crushing any alternate or dissenting views? And just the unscandalous uh, and simple answer is no. Uh, not only because that simply isn't true, it's just not realistic. Christians were um, too busy trying not to get murdered to develop a systemic system of coercion that spanned across three continents when the main mode of transformation was foot and text message was literally a dude carrying a letter for months across a continent. No, it's, it's much simpler than that, especially regarding the New Testament. Nobody unanimously decided what was in or what was at. Instead, the various councils that we have in, in church history, what we have um, recorded is that in the second, and, uh, second uh, in the two and three hundredth A.D., they simply affirmed what the churches had already decided themselves. The criteria that the churches affirmed at these councils were that the churches used and that was affirmed by these councils was pretty simple. Was it written by an apostle or an eyewitness of Jesus? During the time they were alive, does it match up with all the other stuff that we already have? And third, was it widely received? Did one sketchy church think it was legit, or did, or did everybody think that it was, it was the same thing? To go one step further, even if there was some kind of mob-like coup that would have uh, tried to overcome and, and stop any kind of dissenting uh, views, why would they have left so much embarrassing material in, in the Bible? As one author writes, in higher education, we say that history is written by the winners. If that's the case, then we can expect the winner's version of history to be pretty one-sided. Their causes always to be true and just. Their leaders to be noble or heroic or idolized. Their own roles sanitized of any wrongdoing. Yet, the gospel stories contain plenty of material that seems counterproductive to that end. Jesus' hometown, his family, they reject him. He is literally killed by Israel's arch nemesis, Rome. Peter, who is basically the leader of the church, is portrayed as an unfaithful, loudmouth, bumbling idiot. None of this material makes any sense as a fabrication or as a cover-up. All of that embarrassing material gives the accounts a sense of authenticity because it's it's just what happened. The last argument I'll just give for the reliability of, of the Bible is that it's incredible consistency. It is consistent in two ways. One, it is internally consistent. The 66 individual books written on three continents in three different languages over a period of about 1,500 years by more than 40 authors who come from wildly different walks of life, they all tell the same story. They present the same message. There is incredible consistency and unity internally within the Bible. The Bible is also just externally consistent. Skeptics have often regarded the Bible as mythological, but archaeology has over and over again confirmed the historical accuracy of the accounts in the Bible. It doesn't take blind faith to believe that the Bible is reliable, but that's just half of trustworthiness, right? The other question is the question of truth. And while Blind faith, an ignorant faith, that, that's not what God asks for. He does ask for faith, and, and to believe that the Bible is true does require faith. 
Is what the Bible actually says, is it actually true and right and good? It's reliable, but is it true and right and good? River City, we hold firmly to the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, which means that we think that the Bible is entirely free from falsehood and fraud and deceit. It's, it's right in everything that it teaches. It is not in error in any way. But there are matters that it doesn't teach on. Again, so la scriptura, not so low scriptura. The other question when it comes to truth is just, the question always comes up. So if you think the Bible's true, do you take it literally? And I just say, that's a, that's a really oversimplistic and unhelpful question. The Bible is made up of 66 different books with many different genres and types of literature, including poetry, historical narrative, wisdom literature, prophecy, letters, or epistles. So when Jesus says that he is the door, no, it doesn't mean he's actually a door, Right? When the psalmist writes in graphic detail about the pains of his heart, is that literal? No, but that's not the point. That's not the point of poetry, is it? But when Luke, the doctor and historian, writes, in, as he says, in his carefully investigated and orderly account that Jesus died and that he rose from the dead, yes, we take that literally. Jesus himself clearly believed and taught that Jonah was in the belly of a whale that Moses parted the Red Sea. To reduce the Bible and oversimplify it, when we do that, we undermine it altogether. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul, he writes to Timothy and he says that you need to present yourself as one who handles the word of truth correctly, who rightly handles it. And what that means is that there is also a wrong way to handle it. If there's a right way, then that means there's a wrong way, which many people do. You can twist and manipulate and proof text and misquote and remove from context lots of stuff in the Bible so that it says basically anything that you want it to say. But that is not what sola scriptura is about. Instead, it's about having such a high regard for the scriptures that you treat it with incredible honor and respect and dignity. And so you study it carefully not flippantly, not, not to get it to say what you want it to say, but to, to understand what it really says. And so we ask good questions and, follow, and allowing our assumptions to be wrong. And what we do is we lay our ideologies at the feet of these words, asking for them to form us, not instead looking for them to affirm what we already think or believe. We need to carefully handle God's word, to do the hard work of looking into the backgrounds and the context. That's why, for example, when, we, when I taught for months through the books of First and Second um, Peter, I was constantly reminding us about who these letters were written to and what the circumstances of those letters were and the cultural and significance and the backgrounds of what was going on because we need to do the hard work of making sure that what we think the Bible means is consistent with what it actually meant to the people it was written to. Just, the Bible wasn't written to you and me. It's, it's for us, but it's not written to us. And so we need to do the hard work of contextualizing. And, and once we do that, only then do we apply it to our lives. You see, to have a robust faith, you need to have a robust mind. Blind faith is not what God is after. And I would just say, it doesn't honor him. God's the wisdom of all ages. Blind faith, is, it's not what he's looking for, and it doesn't honor him. Before we get to the last point, I just want to make one aside. 
When it comes to believing that the Bible is trustworthy, is the trustworthy record of the Word of God. Some Christians say things like this. They say, there is undeniable, unquestionable evidence. There is 100% certainty. And just, that's, that's just simply not true. While I believe that there is very good and convincing evidence that the Bible is God's Word and is reliable, there is no 100% proof. God doesn't provide proof. If he did, uh, everyone would just be forced to believe what he said. And that's not the way that God works. That's not his way. I think the more helpful thing for us to say is that there is evidence that demands a verdict. There's good evidence. There's significant evidence. And the claims of the Bible that it makes, they're huge, and they are hugely important. And the evidence is significant. You need to have an opinion about it. It's not Harry Potter. It's like the Bible is the most significant book in all of human history. There are more copies of the Bible than of anything else. It has affected more people than any other book in all of history. You need to have an opinion about what it says. So scripture should be our highest authority because it's God's word and because it's trustworthy. But last, Paul says that scripture should be our highest authority, he tells Timothy, because it is sufficient. Sufficient to teach us everything we need to know about salvation. Verse 15, from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. If we want to know how we are made right with God, we look to the scriptures and we compare whatever somebody says about that, we compare it with what the Bible says about it. Also, Paul says that the scriptures aren't just sufficient to teach us about what we need to do to be saved. They're sufficient to teach us everything we need to know about sanctification or growing up in our faith. Verse 17, he says, All scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to know how we're supposed to grow up in our faith, if we want to know what our lives are supposed to look like, if we want to know what is right and what is wrong, then again, we look to scripture to be our highest authority. It is sufficient to teach us what we need to know. We'll talk about this next week, but there are disastrous consequences when we put something else as the thing of highest authority. Again, it's not to say that there aren't other authorities. The question is, what's the highest authority? Next week, we'll talk about what often replaces Scripture as our highest authority in our lives and how that affects things. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is the highest, is our final authority because it's sufficient. This morning I've, I've argued for why Scripture should be our highest authority in all matters of faith and practice. Because it's God's Word, because it is trustworthy, and because it is sufficient. That is something that we are unashamed to hold to here at River City. What we believe about this book, what we believe about God's Word, it really changes everything about us. And if you are here this morning and you are in the process of figuring out what you think about the Bible and the God that it reveals, I just want you to know, like, you are welcome here. We're, I'm honored that you would be here. I want you to know that your questions are welcome here. Your doubts are welcome here. Your process is welcome here. If there is any way that I can serve you, ask me. I would be honored to do that. I don't have the answers to every question, but I do have the time to honor the questions that you would have. I want to encourage you to wrestle with the claims that the Bible makes about itself, and more importantly, the claims about who and what it proclaims. There are hard things in the Bible. It's not all good news. So one pastor I listened to this week, he said, this book exposes you, but don't run from that. 
Because it's here that God opens the door for a reformation of the soul. As we would see our sin, we also see the Savior and how greatly he has met our need. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, if, if, you, if you trust that the Bible is God's word, that it's trustworthy, that it's reliable, that it's sufficient, I hope that you are encouraged by our time this morning. I hope that you learn something about not just why, about why you believe the things that you may have already believed. Again, it is not enough for us to just have opinions about stuff. We need to know why we believe those things. Our heart is that our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, that they would come to that same belief, that they would come to that same faith. And you have a robust understanding of those things. So I hope you learn something about why you believe the things that you believe. And I hope that your confidence in the Bible, I hope that it makes you all the more joyful for the good news that the Bible proclaims. I hope it makes you all the more eager and faithful to carefully and diligently study it. I hope that it makes you all the more fervent to live in light of it. D.A. Carson writes it this way, Sola Scriptura is not just a mere slogan or a creedal point to be checked off. Either Scripture establishes what the gospel is, calls people back to the gospel, and transforms God's people with its spirit-anointed gospel truth, shaping them into the conformity of his Son, or it is but an empty boast. Sadly, some affirm Sola Scriptura in a sloganeering way, but rarely read the Bible and never meditate on it, or worse, they thoughtlessly defy it. Let us be people who are faithful stewards of the word of truth, who learn to correctly handle it so that we might enjoy, so that we might enjoy the God that it proclaims and the salvation that that God brings. See, in communion, what we remember and what we celebrate is that truth. We celebrate the good news that the Bible proclaims, that we know and are made right with God, that we are saved by God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, received through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone as our one and final a decisive authority on truth. That's what the five solas are all about. In communion, we remember that the bread, it reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us as he lived the life that we were supposed to live. And the drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that our mutinous, sinful rebellion deserved. And on the cross, he traded places with us. Communion, it doesn't make us right with God. It doesn't change our status or our standing with him. It doesn't make him love you more if you take it. It doesn't make him love you less if you don't take it. Instead, it is a chance for us to remember. It's a chance for us to remember Jesus and all that he has done. To remember the good news that this book proclaims. That we were once enemies of God who God chose to love and adopt as his kids. And that the way that that happens the way that we are saved is by God's unearned and unmerited grace, by receiving it by faith as we put our faith in the person and work of Jesus. That's it. So that God gets all of the glory for saving sinners who could never merit their salvation, who could never earn their salvation, and even if they could, would never be able to keep it. Now the good news about the gospel is that God saved you because he chose to. That gives you great hope and great joy and great just life and thankfulness. It fuels your response to him. And that's what the Bible tells us. It's our trustworthy. It is our sufficient record of the very word of God. And so joyfully and thankfully and holy is our highest authority. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for, thank you for the fact that it's you, that, it, that it's you revealing yourself to us. God, without you revealing yourself to us, there's no way that we could know you. And we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself. We thank you for your word, which helps us to understand who you are. I'm so thankful that your word is not about us, that it's not even to us. I'm thankful that it's for us, but I'm thankful most that it's about you, for how we might know you and love you and live in light of who you are and all that you've done. And so, we God, we pray that you would build in us a robustness, a confidence in your word, in its reliability and its trustworthiness and its sufficiency in that you would help us to put ourselves under the authority of your word, that where we disagree or where we're confused or where we are, we're just wrong. God, that we would choose to put ourselves under the authority of your word. God, we want to know you. We want to love you. We want to follow you. God, we're thankful that you've given us your word so that we might do that. In your good name, amen.